Forget that Isaiah says it for a second and okay. just take the message. Thus says the Lord, 
not an Isaiah. Okay, I'm there. I'm with you. Okay, I'm, okay. I, I've now, I've now suspended all disbelief. Okay, so where we are, we're we're in, yeah, like you said, what's called Deutero Isaiah, which I don't think is you're a making different... it hard for me. Why? <laughs> Why? Because you said forget that it's from Isaiah, and you just told me it's from Deutero. Okay, Isaiah. well it is. I I'm guess good. I can't. You're gonna have to deal with Isaiah. <laughs> I take it all back. But it is from the second part of this book, this prophetic book. <laughs> okay. Um, so there, there's three parts. I, I don't think that there are, many scholars think that there are three different authors of Isaiah. I don't hold to that. I think there is a consistency, a consistent theological thread. But this passage is one of the major reasons that people think Isaiah could not have possibly written this. And this is a... Um, I don't, I don't have a good defense for it, but if we take the tradition of the church at its word, what we see is something actually remarkable. So basically, after the events surrounding uh, Assyria's siege of Jerusalem, so much of the, the beginning part, it, it, it's believed, I, I think, that most of this book, if not all of the book, was basically being written around the time of King Hezekiah, right? Okay. Who is reigning around the time that Assyria has, who has destroyed the northern kingdom, okay. right? the northern yep. tribes, has laid siege to Jerusalem, and Jerusalem was spared, right? They made it out of the attack of Assyria. Okay. There's a warning at the end of chapter 39, as we end sort of the bad news section of the book, that another nation is coming. Babylon is on the horizon, and they're going to come and basically finish the job. So we're sort of um, in this moment after the events surrounding the siege of Jerusalem, uh, Isaiah's um, prophetic ministry looks way, way, way into the future. And again, this is part of the reason that people think, well, Isaiah could not have written this because Isaiah actually gets insight from God, we believe, into what will happen about 170 years hence, about 170 years in the future, right? Beyond the Babylonian exile and looking all the way toward the eschaton and toward the messianic age and all the stuff is to come. And the idea here is that after Babylon comes and finishes the job that Assyria didn't do, in other words, after we are wiped out for our own sin as a consequence because we wouldn't listen, we wouldn't turn back, all of this stuff, then you get this shocking message in chapter 45, which basically is God saying, everything I said was going to happen in the first 40 chapters has now come true. It's all come upon you. And now I'm going to begin to dig you out of the rubble. And I'm going to begin to build you back up, and I'm going to be able, begin to restore you. How is God going to restore his people? With well, the hamburger. Rubble, <laughs> rubble, rubble, rubble. <laughs> you've rendered me speechless. <laughs> you and Grimace You're, have rendered me speechless. Is, is it Grimace not, not Grimace a... is the giant purple blob. Okay, side note. What is Grimace? Is he a spilled milkshake? Is he... Like, of all of the... Remember when we were kids, they had the right. fry guys. They were obviously French fries. The right. Hamburglar is a hamburger with a who is going to rob you blind, apparently, if you look the other way. Right. What the heck is Grimace? The best I can think of is a spilt milkshake. <laughs> the Hamburglar. <laughs> <laughs> look out. Exactly. I don't I, know what marketing I, I, the marketing team is actually, saying to us. I think Grimace is personified emotion. <laughs> <laughs> what emotion? I think, I think that just one of the one of the creators just like grimacing, <laughs> anger, just grimacing. Rubble, rubble, yeah. rubble, rubble. Does grimace say anything? I don't know. Okay, <laughs> okay, uh, okay. Oh my gosh, you totally. I mean, ruined that was, me. That was, you have ruined me. Yeah, yeah. But, okay, but, the consolation. This is the consolation well, yeah, yeah, portion but, of Isaiah. But, but, so. what, what, everything's been reduced to rubble, right? <laughs> yes. <laughs> That's all I can hear now. Okay. <laughs> And this is the shocking part. And again, this line is why so many scholars think that God could not have possibly shown Isaiah with this much clarity what was going to happen in a specific moment in the future. Because, of course, in a lot of modern biblical scholarship, there's an anti-miraculous strain. There's a what's called demythologizing, this idea that if there's anything that seems miraculous or prophetic or not explainable by natural means, right. it's got to be fake, can't right. be real. Right. And so Isaiah, writing in the time of what, the 400s, sees what's going to happen far into the future. And it says, thus says the Lord to his anointed. And of course, the the word in Hebrew for anointed is the word Messiah. Right. So 
the Lord said to his Messiah, and Messiah, by the way, doesn't always mean God. Messiah is a term for the king. The king was called a Messiah. Messiah is a Hebrew term that means to smear something with oil, to set it apart, to anoint it, in other words. And who is anointed? And, in and this... it's, not, it's not just like cooking, you know? No, not just uh, smear the pan. So yeah, your yeah, sweet potato fries yeah, don't yeah. burn. Anyway, I'm, I'm just saying, like, yeah. So it's it's to say that it's yeah, God's chosen. So who is who is who is the Messiah? Who is a Messiah? Cyrus the Persian, the leader of a pagan empire, who God is going to use to do something absolutely remarkable. And I want to read what comes in the middle here. So okay. this is what the Lord says to His anointed, His Messiah, to Cyrus. And we know who the Cyrus is. There is a man named Cyrus the Persian who is the one that leads the Medo-Persian Empire to overthrowing and overtaking the Babylonians to become the next world superpower after Babylon falls. And so when Israel is living in exile under Babylon, that nation is taken over and becomes the reign of the Persians. And we know that it's Cyrus who will eventually allow the Israelites to go back home and rebuild Jerusalem. And so long, hundreds and hundreds of years before that ever happens, God is foretelling and saying, my anointed one, my Messiah, Cyrus, whose right hand I take hold of to do what? To subdue nations before him, to strip kings of their armor, to open doors before him so that gates will not be shut. I will go before you. This is what our reading doesn't say. I will go before you, Cyrus. I will level the mountains. I will break down the gates of bronze. I will cut through the bars of iron. I will give you the treasures of darkness, riches stored in secret places, so that you may know I am the Lord, the God of Israel, who summons you by name. Why? For the sake of my servant, Jacob, Israel, in other words, Israel, my chosen, I summon you by name to bestow on you a title of honor, though you don't acknowledge me. Cyrus doesn't know the God of Israel. He is a pagan king who worships a slew of other gods. Even though you don't know me, I am going to guide you and protect you and have you do all these things. I am the Lord. There is no other. Apart from me, there is no God. So I will strengthen you, though you have not acknowledged me, so that from the rising of the sun to the place of its setting, men may know that there is none besides me. I am the Lord. There is no other. This defense of God's sovereignty that he demonstrates here in Isaiah is meant to be evidenced through a pagan king of a foreign nation who is not Israel, who is very far from Israel, who becomes a Messiah figure for Israel. This is God saying, man, you want to look into the future. You want to look at all the things that you're stressed about and worried about and the dangers that are set to befall you, which they're really, which are real. There are dangers. There are threats. Babylon is coming. Israel will be wiped out. I can and will use anything and everything on the face of the earth to show forth my glory. You don't think I can work through a pagan emperor to actually set the world right? Let me show you. Watch. I'm going to use Cyrus the Persian emperor to rebuild Jerusalem. Because we know the story later on, Cyrus actually gives money and finances and military support for Israel to go back to, the, to Palestine and to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem. He is the pivotal figure that allows Jerusalem to be resettled and the temple to God's name to be rebuilt even though he's a pagan emperor. I mean, the um, and I, there's, there's, I don't want to get ahead of myself in the readings or ahead of us in the readings, but I was um, really moved in my own reflection this morning. Uh, I, was just, I was brushing my teeth. I remember exactly where I was. I was brushing my teeth, reflecting on this and what it means, you know, in our current age when there's so much to be afraid of and there's so many things that we're threatened by and there's, you know, the, we're, we're a couple weeks out of the election and our nation is Everybody's terrified. Everyone's Everybody's gone full a, on apocalyptic. Every like it's just the world is on edge. The world is on edge. And seriously, people have gone full blown apocalyptic. And I kept asking this question of do we actually believe that God can work whatever he wants through whichever political candidate actually wins? Do we actually believe that? Or do we fall into the apocalyptic fear of if blank candidate wins, we are done for. It's over. Because that's what both sides are saying. And they kind of always have, but I feel like there's an acuteness to it this year. Because things are so tense and we're so fearful. God used a pagan emperor to do his will, to show forth his glory. And I was reflecting, the, the weird reflection that popped into my head was, well, first I was thinking about Judas. And 
we don't know where Judas went after this life. We know he committed suicide. We know he saw himself as unforgivable. We saw, we know that he recognized what he had done. I have sold out the son of God and I have gotten him crucified. I killed God. I mean, imagine having the weight of that. In, I mean, we all sort of spiritually carry that as human beings, but right. he did it. And I wonder about Judas standing before the judgment throne of God, feeling like the worst of the worst. I mean, unimaginable agony, sorrow over what he had done. And God saying, hey, that was a lousy thing you did. <laughs> like, you shouldn't have done that. But look at what I actually did through your evil act. I saved the world through you. Through your act of evil that you should not have done, that was against my will, I used that evil to save all of humanity. And then I thought about the Roman centurion whose job it was to literally hammer the nails into his hands and what that must have felt like. We know a whole lot of Roman centurions actually came to know Jesus. What if that guy was one of them? And what if he recognized the weight of his sin? And then what if God showed him the spiritual value of those wounds? And yeah, what you did, it was horrible. But look at what I did through it. And my reflection was just, how big are we willing to allow our God to be? How much, how sovereign are we, allow, are we willing to allow God to be in our world? Can God work through Donald Trump? Absolutely. Can God work through Joe Biden? He sure better be able to, or else what do we believe about God and about humanity? Can he work through Vladimir Putin? Can he work through Kim Jong-un? I mean, God is God. And this is a statement that says there is no kingdom, no political leader, no power, no civilization on earth that is beyond my sight and beyond my grasp and beyond my power. I do what I want to because I want to save my people and I want my name to be known. So I'll use a Cyrus the Persian if it makes my name be known. I will use a Roman centurion who feels regret over what happens and cries out at the foot of the cross, surely this was the Son of God, so that people centuries from then can know the name of the Son of God. I don't know. I'm, I'm not trying to get preachy, but I was really moved by this passage um, and thinking about what it's actually saying to the people of Israel, which had to have been hard to swallow, right? Yeah, a pagan emperor is going to be like a messiah to you guys. What? Yeah. Yeah. It, it's, it, I mean, it's complicated when I, when I look in my heart and I hear you, you say that because um, on, on one hand, I have very strong political beliefs and understanding. As well we should. Right. Exactly. And we should, we should actually be considering things deeply, profoundly and be working towards what we know is right and true and good and just. Absolutely. And I don't, yeah, please don't misunderstand right. what right. I'm saying. It's not just, oh, well, God will figure it out. So I don't have to do anything. Right. No, 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 no. But, but, but then I, I have, for a long time, it's been sitting in my heart, this, this idea of, um, we as Catholics can, are not bound to anything except for Jesus Christ in the truth of, of the sacraments that he has poured out for us, his passion, death, resurrection, ascension back to the Father and descent of the Spirit into our lives. Yeah. And for this reason, we can endure in any circumstance, in any civilization of any time. Now, sometimes it's, it makes it very hard to do that. And that's yeah. actually, that's, oh, the, yeah. that's, that's the thing. It's like, like you pray for religious peace. I mean, for, for peace and the freedom to be able to actually celebrate religion. And yes, we, you know, like did the church, did the church um, exist within feudal Japan for 500 years without priests? It, it did. Now things. That's not the ideal. No, no. Like, <laughs> right. right. Like, like there, there's, there's some real constraints about how that goes. And like, mm -hmm. did, did it exist in, does it exist in communist China? Yeah, it does exist in communist China. Um, but the, but the constraints and the difficulties and the profound suffering of that church exists in a way. So, right. so yes. And, and, and is God working through those means? Yeah, because God is sovereign and bigger than everything. And can we endure all things in the one who strengthens us? Yeah. St. Paul says that that's how, that's his secret to being able to live in, in both abundance and yeah, in scarcity. Right. Yeah. So, but man, Lord have mercy. I don't want to be in the time of Cyrus. Well, but, but. Oh, Cyrus is the best. Uh, not the best, but Cyrus. So actually, so, no, oh, Cyrus was actually super favorable and right. helped reconstruct. Right. He really did do those things. Right. And it was Cyrus who defeated the Babylonians and Nebuchadnezzar and the kings that were enslaving them. Right. God, you're actually speaking to the theology of the book of Isaiah, <laughs> like it or not. I don't like which it. Which is, 
I get no. to be I get to be ornery every once you in a while. You can be ornery, but you're still saying the theology of Isaiah, which is Isaiah is desperately, as are all the prophets, desperately saying, we need to change. We need to do this. We need to work harder. We need to repent. We need to call the whole nation back. Like he is desperate trying to get Israel to turn back so that we can avoid the evils that are coming. Right. Because God doesn't want those evils to come. Right. But guess what? Once all else fails, once they expend everything, once Isaiah has said everything that could be said and Israel still falls, this is a warning against defeatism. I'm saying we tried as hard as we could. We did our best. They would not listen. There was rejection. And now we're done. We're defeated. It's over. Throw in the towel. And God says, no. You worked as hard as you, Isaiah worked as hard as he could. The prophets worked as hard as they could. Other people didn't. But he said, once it seems like the story has ended, the story has not ended. Mm. Guess who I'm going to use to bring this out? So it, it, mm. what you're saying is yeah. true. We work, Isaiah wasn't just like, well, I'm going to say my thing. And if they listen to me, great. If they don't, that's fine because God will work it out somehow. That's not what he does. Right. He works as hard as humanly possible. But then once we are defeated, God says, all right, Israel did not do what I wanted her to do. So guess what I'm going to do? I'm going to use a pagan empire to do what I wanted Israel to do so that I can build the people of God back up. Right. I'm going to turn my attention. I'm going to give my favor to the Persians Mm. so that they can do what Israel could not do, which was allow space for the people of God to come back. And that's where um, once the story, it's the moment of once the story seems over, how on earth is the happy ending going to come about? So to speak, I don't right. know, but but you are and you are speaking to the theology again. It's not wash your hands, everything's cool. God's in charge. God, that's true. That's not untrue. What's the saying? The uh, work as though everything depended on you. Pray as though everything depended on God. Saint Vincent de Paul, which is which is right. Hi, uh, yeah, it's such a painful. I, I actually think that we should work as if everything depended on God and pray as if everything depended on us. I'm just kidding. That's a joke. Oh, okay. I was, <laughs> I was getting ready to refute you. <laughs> I, rebut, I rebut that. I rebutted that. Which rebel, rebel. actually does bring us perfectly to Psalm 96. Yeah, yeah. I mean, brother, yeah, it's just, it's such a, I, I find my heart so, um, it's just such a complicated time because I, like, as we're winding up, as we're like winding up for this, for this election, mm-hmm. Because man, there is the windup is serious. Oh, it's been a long windup, right? And and like it, it, to the point on where people are like calling for literal revolution, right? Like right. people are shooting each other in the streets, yeah. like literally down in Denver, somebody shot somebody, and you're like, are you kidding me? That this this is how like like people are just getting so wound up, yeah. And yet we know how to live in scarcity and in abundance. Yeah. And, and it's because we can do all things in him who strengthens us. And that, that no matter the outcome of what's actually happening, it's, it, it, I think it's a wake-up call to say we actually have to be diligently engaged. Absolutely. This, and and we, don't, we don't get to just sit in our basements and watch our Netflix. Like, like that's not actually what we're supposed to be doing. We're, we're not supposed to be a, a people who sleeps, but a people right. who are profoundly engaged in the act of living out culture. And this is, right. this is what's so hard in this particular time is that to create and to live out Catholic culture in an, in an age where it very well could be that we are going to be the, in the normal state of the church, which is persecuted. The normal state of the church is persecution. Absolutely, Not, which is a hard one, to, a hard pill to swallow. But that's we've we've gotten very comfortable as a church over the last few hundred years. Well, because we're living like other the uh, the rest of the world. Yeah, absolutely. And and that's where we say no. We're actually supposed to live differently, which leads us into the psalm. I right. mean, like this is which, like how do we live differently? Which is a psalm a lot of people think the psalm is, uh, in a lot of ways, a prophetic psalm speaking to the vocation of the New Testament people after the restoration of what on earth is that supposed to look like? So sing to the Lord a new song, sing to the Lord all you lands, go and tell his glory among the nations. It's a, it's a call to evangelization among the peoples, his wondrous deeds. The Lord is, is uh, great as the Lord and highly to be praised. This is what he is saying about himself in Isaiah, that my purpose in using a guy like Cyrus— is not just, okay, well, I'm going to find whatever loophole I can to get my will done, 
No, God's not just trying to find loopholes to get done his will. He's trying to make his name known among all of the nations. That's always been the task of God. That has always been the task of the people of God. When they fail at it, he's going to find another way to make his name moan. His name moan. moan among all nations, all the families of the earth, the families of nations give glory and praise, um, all these things. Uh, Not to oversimplify it, but the gist of all these readings is that God is in charge. God is in control. God is the king, period. And there's no addendum to that. It just simply is the fact. And the task of the church is to make that fact known to every nation, every tribe, every people, every tongue. Yeah, and I just I, I'm also struck. I've been thinking about this recently. It says, "For the gods of the nations are idols." Yep. I, I like you know we're actually weirdly explicit about that culturally. How so? American Idol, like <sighs> it's it's really interesting, <laughs> right? Like. Like if you look around, sometimes like, I can't tell when you're joking and, and you're not, and where the line is, and I don't know what to do. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you're like, you're like, I don't know. Well, well, what, what like American Idol is a variety show for those of you who have not tuned into to television ever. Would you call it a variety show? Yeah, I guess it's a variety show. It's a variety show. Yeah, you, right. you got you got you know the the stuttering comedian to the all the way up to like you know the 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 are there puppeteers dancing puppeteering That's all absolutely I care about. singers. That's all I care about on the show Dude, like this is this is the this give is the, me a good puppeteer on every day of the week right, right so i don't know how to respond to the i wish i could do your your fancy 20s voice but i just can't do it i don't know how to respond to it we're gonna have to like Sorry. you're gonna have to give me less we'll do some practice okay it just comes out of it place deep in my soul but what is the goal the goal is to become an american idol the goal of what the, goal the american idol <laughs> oh, the goal of the show. Okay, yeah. we're back to the show. Good. Yeah, yeah exactly. Okay. See, but I was like, w- I didn't see that in the readings. Why? Because w- what we want to hold up are these people of great talent. Yeah. And we want to hold up the these things that, that, that in, in, in a certain sense, because of we are a representative mm. government. We are not a monarchy. We're no. not an aristocracy. We're not an oligarchy. Right. And and because of that, there's a certain egalitarian thing. And because of representation, we actually try to hold up. It's like my my father used to tell me the story about the World's Fair in the 1960s, and how the the, the they were bringing together all of these different wonderful things um, from all over the world. And and one of the the American booth had Elvis's outfit and Marilyn Monroe's stuff and and like how we actually hold up these idols to the world classic I know it's just classic, classic. to where like and it's, a hamburger and the hamburglar and the hamburger <laughs> and grimace rubble rubble <laughs> I don't know I just look at this because I say what is the culture that we are existing in and we are not to actually take those as gods because it's so easy to sit in our basement and to just offer worship at the throne of our TVs rather than to say, no, we are going to engage in truth and right and goodness and make the glories of God known throughout the world. And how do we do that? We actually come together and we tell the stories of our lives. So even if we are like weirdly not doing it great, or if we're just doing it in a medium way, you don't think we're doing it great. No, (laughs) I'm just kidding. I just don't like you, Scott. That's really what it comes to. That got negative. (laughs) Well, you don't have to like me. You just have to acknowledge that God can use me. (laughs) God can use you. You don't have to like Cyrus the Persian. Just Uh, acknowledge that God can use him. Dude, Cyrus, Cyrus, Cyrus. Speaking of Cyrus. Let's go to Thessalonians. Paul Sylvanus, which doesn't sound like Cyrus. I was trying to find him. Sylvania. Isn't that a light bulb? Yeah, it's a light bulb. (laughs) So, uh, 1 Thessalonians... um, First uh, Thessalonians is one of the. There's not a tremendous amount of of theology, of intense theology in this letter. It acts almost more like a pastoral letter, it, which which is good. I mean, it's funny. Most of Paul's letters, you feel like he's fighting fights with people. He's trying to put out fires and he's trying to like have a fist fight with somebody. Um, Thessalonians tends to get less attention from scholars and just, you know, less notoriety than like Romans or Corinthians because he's just fighting less. It's more of, I'm your pastor. Here's how I'm trying to encourage you, which right. almost sounds boring, but it's, <laughs> it's what a pastor is supposed boring. to do, which it's not at all boring, but there's, there's fewer fights. So, right. um, Thessaloniki, by the way, it's a, it's a major commercial center in Macedonia. I think it was the capital of the province of Macedonia. So it's an important city in the Roman empire. 
Um, and Paul is writing, this is the, like you said at the beginning, it's literally the very beginning of this letter. So in a letter, you always begin with the signature. So him, Sylvanus and Timothy, his, his, the, the three musketeers, they're the ones they're together when they're writing this letter. Um, Sylvanus and Timothy are obviously known to the Thessalonians. They're like, Oh, it's a letter from those guys. It's, it's meant to be encouraging. It's meant to be uplifting. Um, he says to the church in Thess- uh, Thessalonians and God, the father, Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. We give thanks to you, to God always for all of you remembering. Kyrie Ky- Shalom, which is actually acknowledging both the Greek community and the, Absolutely. And the um, Jewish community. Yeah. It's actually really beautiful because in Greek, when you were addressing a letter, you would say um, greetings, which is ka. It's not quite karis, but it's really close in Greek. And then the Hebrew way of addressing is shalom, of course. And yeah, so he's he's being all things to all people, which is which is kind of beautiful. Um, in the Thanksgiving section of a letter, where where in traditional letters you would give thanks for stuff, yeah. in Paul's letters, that's always where you get kind of the table of contents of what he's going to talk about for the rest of the book. So in his Thanksgiving section, what is he giving thanks for? For all of them, he remembers them in their prayers, and he says, unceasingly calling to mind your work of faith your labor of love, and your endurance of hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. So he just told you what the theme of the letter is going to be, which is faith, hope, and love. But he rearranges them. Do you notice? He's I'm going to talk about your faith, your love, and your hope. And that's actually how he's going to structure the rest of the letter. So there's there's clues in the introduction. Faith of letters. and hope and love. Um, Okay, so then he closes it out. Before God and our Father, before our God and Father, knowing brothers and sisters loved by God that you were chosen. So I'm gonna I'm gonna try to encourage your faith. I'm gonna try to upbuild your love, and I'm trying to give you hope, because I know and you know, he says that your brothers and sisters who are loved by God because you were chosen, he chose you, and how our gospel didn't come to you in word alone, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and in much conviction. And this is a great little it's not a proof text or anything, but I think it's a great little argument against the idea of sola scriptura, this kind of very Protestant idea that mm. it's just the Bible alone. It's never the Bible alone. The Bible is always presented incarnate in someone. Right. Someone gave us a Bible. Someone proclaimed the scriptures. Somebody gave a homily. Someone was associated in the faith that you cannot unpersonify the relationship of the faith being passed down. Mm. And in a certain sense, um, you know, the second reading is always a little bit of a wild card in how it fits in. But I'm what I'm hearing as far as the wisdom of the church in putting these set of readings together is even somebody like Cyrus the Persian. He was the means through which the gospel actually became incarnate in a certain way. Even before Jesus was born, he set the stage for it. It's not by word alone. It's not just by the Torah or faithfulness to the prophets. It's all of the different aspects of life that God chooses to work through. That's how he chooses us. That's how he chooses whoever he chooses to spread His gospel. And again, when he says the word gospel here, he makes it clear. I just don't mean words on a page because he said the gospel didn't come to you in word alone. The gospel is news. It's evangelion. It's a message that God has come to be with his people and he has received kingdom. He has been crowned as king and he has died on behalf of all of us. So to save us. That's what the the gospel isn't words on a page. The gospel is a person. The person of Jesus Christ, God become incarnate, who came among us when humanity thought in such a, a acute sense in their beings that God had abandoned them. And the, the deep sense that so many generations of humans throughout the course of time have felt, is God here? The word gospel, the word euangelion, and it's, it comes actually from the book of Isaiah. That's where the word first shows up, believe it or not. Back to Isaiah. And the gospel says Mm, that if you feel abandoned by God, he's coming back. And then Isaiah goes so far as to say, if you want to find God when he comes back, he's going to show up in the wilderness, in the desert, and there will be a voice crying out in preparation for him. And then he's going to travel a road to Jerusalem where he will be crowned as king. And the reason we call all four of those books in our Bibles gospels is not because they exist in some generic sense, but they tell that narrative of Isaiah. God became incarnate. He showed up in the wilderness. There was a voice of a guy named John crying out his coming. And then he travels a physical road from the desert to Jerusalem where he is crowned king. That's the narrative. And Paul is saying, that's not just words on a page. It is an incarnate word that we carry in our very beings. Me, Sylvanus, Timothy, you know us. You've spent time with us. You've been taught by us. You've been discipled by us. That's the gospel. And don't forget your own chosenness. 
And God can even use the likes of you. The gospel always becomes incarnate. That's, I think, how it relates back to the first reading, that the gospel became incarnate even in a pagan emperor. So do set the stage for somebody like Paul. I don't know. Does that make sense? Might be a stretch to try to connect the dots, but that's what I saw. Yeah. I feel like I'm yelling at you. You are. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Did it make Calm sense to you? No, I'm calming down. I'm calming down. I'm cool. I'm cool. Did I make you mad? No, I just got excited. Yeah, yeah, you did. <laughs> it's really funny. Like uh, you, you do that in your class too. I I, I'll, I'll be walking by, going up to mass, and I'll, and you're like, ah, everybody. Yeah, it's because you're fighting for like what's good and beautiful and right and true. You've got true. Yeah, the gospel. Like uh, that's the one thing that you and I fight for in a more profound thing than anything else is the gospel always comes incarnate. It, it by by definition, right? You know, right? That's and. There's more we can say. Yeah, I, I've been studying the I'm book of soapbox. That I've been studying the book of Kells, and, mm. and an academic article actually made of the point to say that the the decoration of Celtic knotwork and key panels and spirals and all this stuff is actually woos. is a uh, whirls is actually one of the ways that he says it. Is that so, a technical term? Yeah, whirls. Nice. Yeah, as uh, that he was arguing to say that those are all things attempting to get at incarnation on the page. Even, mm. and, and like, like this, this is the thing is that it, it's still, it's good to have that, to make something dimensional and real. And yet mm. the, the, the truth is, is that the word always comes with the person mm. is that there is no substitute for, for, for personhood. There's not. And that's, you, you, even if you can point the more and more intensely, but that's, that's, that's why like. The compelling nature of of, mm. of an idol, of a god, of of the the like even in in contemporary culture where we're trying to establish new gods with the MCU, the 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 um the uh, Marvel Cinematic Universe. You hear these like gods, you know, like oh, okay, but and and people can get confused. Like Ant Man. Like, yeah. <laughs> continue. Thanks for that. I just <laughs> yeah. why don't you just take this sting? I had to bring it down to right, right, exactly. But well, which which. I think, again, not to bring it back to culture, modern day practicalities, this is very hard to do for, I, I mean, I think aside from the very real political implications of what's going on, which I do not diminish whatsoever, I think it's easy to fall into the despair and the anger of all of these things because we have become such a depersonalized culture. Ooh. We're not with our neighbors, we're not with our church communities Maybe. nearly as much as we, we have been and should be. We're not actually interacting eyeball to eyeball with, as you say, with people. And so these things mm. exist in an abstraction online. And of course, we're getting more angry. Of course, we're getting more enraged. Of course, we're getting more fearful because we're not dealing with incarnate realities. It's really hard to hate the person when they're standing in front of you. Right. You have to deal with the person. But... It's just easy to make things abstract, and it's easy to make things idols when they're abstractions. Mm. That's why the the gods, the ancient gods of the ancient Near East, they were said to have become incarnate at some point, but I have no experience with them. They're not something I receive eucharistically. I mean, Jesus is like, don't ever make me an abstract idol. I am real. I am living. I am alive. I am sacramental. I am here. I am not an abstraction. Idols are things that we tend to abstract, right? Maybe, is that true? It is. It I don't is. know. So and, I think I mean, this is speaking to our age in a particular way. Right, and that's the, the thing that I keep complaining about is ad hominem attack. It's just yeah. everything is just attacking the person. At the man. Rather than actually doing the wor hard work of, of dealing with the ideas themselves. Yes. Because, because we have two different cultures, which is a personal absolutism versus a Western civilization, mm. and they're at war with each mm. other. And a personal absolutism says, I, I can have a foundationless morality solely determined by me and my own ideas. Mm -hmm. And it sounds like relativism, but relativism gives relativism, allowance, no. allowance for somebody else to have ideas. Relativism is dead, I firmly believe. Right. No, and, and it was never sustainable. And so there's the lowest common denominator of, of, of a foundationless morality yeah. that just says everybody gets to do it. But they it's want absolute. A, but it's an absolute. There is an absolute to it. That's why I say relativism is dead. Right. And it's then, not, I'm okay, you're okay. Right. It's, you're not okay. <laughs> right. <laughs> Believe me. B b by infringing upon my personal yeah. beliefs. Maybe that's a good segue into the gospel. Well, I think it is. Okay. So the Pharisees went off. So we're in Matthew 22, which means we are 
in this window from chapter 21, I believe, through chapter 24. Chapter 21 through 24, everything that Jesus does takes place within the courts of the temple. And this is, so chapter 21, he shows up on Palm Sunday. Chapter 24, he leaves Jerusalem and pronounces judgment upon the city that has become a den of robbers and thieves, right? Mm. So in between, you have the testing, the prodding, the poking. So remember, um, on Palm Sunday, along with Jesus coming into town in a donkey, you have all of the sheep, all the lambs that are going to be sacrificed for the Passover, who spend the week from Sunday till the Passover meal being poked and prodded and tested and scrutinized by the religious authorities to determine whether they are free of blemish and clean to be sacrificed. Jesus simultaneously is being poked and prodded and scrutinized and tested and messed with all week before the most unlikely of people, Pontius Pilate, the Roman authority, pronounces three times at least, I find no guilt in this man, I find no fault in this man, I find no sin in this man. He is free to be sacrificed. He is clean, free of blemish. Dude, I've never. It's we've funny. never talked about that. I, I've may, unless you've already told me, but I'm experiencing it a totally anew in the in those. Like we have talked about it, but like the way in which you're saying it right now, mm. and then seeing Pontius Pilate being the one who determines he's the, 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 new the faultless. Yeah, he's the new Cyrus. He's the new Cyrus, and he is the one that makes the priestly declaration. Yeah. He is free of blemish. He is innocent. He's the unblemished lamb. So he's the one who, like, because Jesus tells, like, he says to his believers, if the Roman army says to you, go one mile, then you go two. Right. So he's right. really the Miley Cyrus. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> you, I, I was hanging on what you were saying there. All right. So in the middle of this. Oh, oh come on. Night. That was like, come on. That was a full setup. Do I have With, to call the podcast Miley Cyrus? <laughs> oh, maybe. I mean, maybe. But like, no, he he he's the new Cyrus. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah so I mean, come on. But that was that was pretty good as far as a biblical setup it's and too, a it's not contemporary cultural payoff. It's not too bad. It's not too bad. Yeah. Um, but in the middle of that, so that's where we're headed. <laughs> but in the midst of it, the church chooses today to give us this story, um, which mm. is there's a lot I want to say about it, but I don't know exactly what the punchline should be. So let me say a couple things and then I'm just going to trust that you have something super profound to wrap it up <laughs> okay, with. Okay. So the, the Pharisees went off. So they're, they're, they're testing him. They're plotting with him. He's giving these parables. They don't understand. People seem to like it. The religious leaders hate it. It's, it's messy. So the Pharisees went off. They're frustrated because of the parables of the vineyard he's been telling. They go off and they plotted about how they might entrap Jesus in his speech. And then they sent their disciples to him with the Herodians. Pause there. That is one of the most shocking statements in this whole passage. Right, because, because they're joining the Herodians and the and the Sadducees, which are like di- diametrically opposed. Which is perfectly applicable to our political situation now. It would be uh, like uh, Biden's campaign gets together with Trump's campaign to yeah, come up against something. Some common threat. Because Jesus, I mean, but the people that do not agree on anything cannot work together to save their lives. They can agree on the destruction of Jesus. Because Jesus is calling out the hypocrisy of the Pharisees, that they've misunderstood and misinterpreted all the prophets and the laws because they don't understand. And their whole bread and butter is teaching and understanding the prophets and the laws. That's what they do. And Jesus is like, no, you've misunderstood everything. And then, of course, the Sadducees and the Herodians, they don't want a new king. They don't want the Davidic figure to come back because they're really well paid by Caesar. So they want to keep the status quo. So they hate Jesus, too. So he is a threat. I'm getting yelly again. So he's a threat to everybody. And they decide. Uh, I'll, I'll put on my NPR voice. So he's a threat to everybody. And no, they just, decide just, to get, just get passionate, okay. man. Just let, your, let, let so the flag they, fly, bro. So they go. So they send their people, right? But again, that just note the heaviness of that. And if you're reading this in the first century, you're like, hold on. Who got together with who to do what? Oh, my gosh. Pharisees that's a big deal. Herodians, man. Wow. And they go and they say, teacher, we know that you're a truthful man. BS, right? They're buttering him up. We know that you're such a good truth. You know, they're buttering him up for something. And you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. I have to say it in that voice because they're saying it out of mockery. We know these people. We know what they're up to. And you're not concerned with anybody's opinion for you don't regard a person's status. So tell us, what's your opinion? Well, this is interesting. But basically what they're trying to do is they're trying to frame frame it. Frame him. Yeah. Yeah. Well, they're trying to frame the question in such a way 
that um, that they can trap him in lies, right? So truthful man, truth. Oh, interesting. And you're not oh, concerned with that. opinion. Mm-hmm. So, so what 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 we're, what they're going to try to do is they're going to say you're going to tell us the truth and we're going to mess with opinions. Okay, that's and, interesting. And so, and, right, and right. so it's it's kind of like on the like cable news channel of your choice. They're like, oh, why don't you give us your opinion so that they can go after it and <laughs> say this is the truth? So like they're they're actually right. trying to erode things. Totally, yeah, totally. And in their attempt to erode things, they found a way to trap him. So it's this famous uh, passage about the the temple ta- or not the temple ta- the the tax to Caesar. So is it lawful to? Be- it seems like a simple enough question, right? Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? So the question is this. Here's the setup. If Jesus says, yes, pay your taxes, it's cool. Caesar, remember, we've talked about this before. Caesar legally declared himself a god, the son of God. He's a deity. And if he's a deity, that makes him an idol. He's a pagan idol. And so if Jesus says, pay the tax, oh, the one with the coin that has Caesar's face on it, the little symbol of idolatry, He's saying to the people of God, go and submit to the pagan idol. And if he's saying submit to a pagan idol, then he must be false or wrong or horrible or something. Well, then but the, if and the says, Pharisees will go nuts. The Pharisees will go nuts. But if he says, no, don't pay the temple tax, well, oh, well, that's illegal. Now we're going to turn you over to Rome. You're, you're committing treason. You're telling the people that they're not supposed to pay taxes to Rome. Now Rome's going to get you. And the Heronians are going to be like, all right, we'll rally against you. So there's no answer that Jesus can give that doesn't have some group of people um, horrified with him or, or giving him reason. They're trying to find a way to put him to death, right? Because if he makes a claim, do not pay the taxes, I am king, I am an authority, it's an act of treason, and that can get him crucified, which washes the religious leader's hands of this problem, because then he's Rome's problem because he said something treasonous. If we can get him... It was a pretty good trap. It's a great trap. And if we can get him to say, no, pay the taxes, then all of his followers who seem to think he's a king, they're going to all go away because he's not that good of a king if he's saying that Caesar's still king. So that obviously means he's not. So it's a perfect trap. Now, I mentioned... Where are so from chapter 21 through chapter 24, all the action takes place in one place. Where is it? Temple. They're in the temple. They're in the courts of the temple. The law is clear. In the temple, you you cannot have an idol in the temple. No. And so when Jesus says, Oh, cool, cool. Give me a coin. Let me see a coin really quick. Pull one out of your pocket. And the Pharisees, of course, reach down to their pocket and pull out the idol that they're not supposed to have by rule of law in the temple precincts. And I bet everybody that day was like, oh, you just pulled out an idol. And he's called out their hypocrisy. You are not permitted to have Roman. That's why there's money changers. Remember on Palm Sunday when he overturns the money changers tables? They have to have money changers because you can't bring images of Caesar, the false god, into the temple precinct. So they had to trade it out with coins that didn't have pagan images. But these Pharisees have a bunch of pagan images in their pocket. Right. So before Jesus says a word, he's already called them. He's already won the argument without right. answering anything. Right. And he's called out their hypocrisy. Um, does he? Yeah. Why are you testing me, you hypocrites? Show me a coin. And they're like, oh, here you go. And so they handed him the coin. And then, you know, again, with the crowd probably all flipping out, going, oh, man. I don't know what they're doing. I assume they're doing that. I hope they're doing that. And he says, whose image is this and whose inscription? I wonder the tone of voice with which they said, Caesar's. <laughs> it's because they know they're not supposed to have it. Everybody knows they're not supposed to have it. They've got their tail between their legs. And there we go. It's Caesar's. And he says, give to Caesar what is Caesar's and give to God what belongs to God, which there has been a lot of ink and commentary yeah, about say ink this ink. passage. Of Sh- Chaput wrote a wonderful a book. A wonderful book. The good Archbishop Chaput wrote a wonderful book about this, about our responsibilities to civic life and government. And uh, at the end of the day, there's a lot of things we could say. Number one, Jesus is saying, you are more hypocritical than anybody else here because you have pagan idols in your pocket. So idolatry that we've talked about before. And number two, what he's ultimately saying, if you take this, <laughs> you you can read it in such a way to be like, well, he's saying that, you know, pay your taxes to Caesar and then give to God what belongs to God. But in almost juxtaposing these things, what is it that belongs to Caesar that does not belong to God? Nothing. Nothing. He's saying, okay, give the things to Caesar that Caesar's. But to God, give the things that are God's. Well, what's God's? Everything, including Caesar. It's all God's. And he's making a statement about how everything is my father's. 
your temple taxes, your emperor, the coins in your pocket, give to God all of it. He, he really skirted the question in a pretty brilliant way by saying there's nothing that's not my father's. And by extension, I have authority over it. Which is, yeah, I, I look, this, you want to talk about one of the most difficult things to actually struggle with internally is a true sovereignty of God. Is to yeah, you're right. is to actually say God is literally Lord of all, King of Kings, yeah. uh, King of everything. <laughs> like, nice. like, like, like to 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 believe that and to say He is willing to use Judas in the greatest sin. Right. He's willing to use Cyrus. He doesn't want our sin. Right. He doesn't will our sin, but he will use it if it comes. Right. He even uses he Miley over our sin. Cyrus. <laughs> oh my gosh, here we go. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean... It's true, though. Right, right. Like, for, for the good of all... And this is actually... This is one of those hard things is we, we are still meant... This is what's so hard is that it's about the defeat of sin and death mm-hmm. and not merely just earthly powers. We still always fight for what's right. And you can see always. that in, in St. Paul. He's always trying to say, you guys, you got to do what's right. You got to yes. consider what's right and good. And, and like, even though he, God is going to use him and Barnabas's um, strife. Right. Yeah. Right. He's going to use the, that reality. He's going to actually go through and to say that the tensions that exist between um, the the Greek and Roman community and the Jewish community, he's going to actually yeah. use that dynamic tension between Paul and Peter. Mm-hmm. He's going to use that tension between um, the church and state yeah. and to actually yeah. look and to say, we're, God will utilize those things for his own purposes. And yet we're not off the hook to actually say, yeah, we're not off the hook. Yeah. To say we've got to exist in a way that really is about truth, good, beauty. Yeah. And, and yet we can exist in all places and all times in any way, knowing that God has not abandoned his people and that the, the, the victory is always his. Yeah. And, and, it, and we don't have to be afraid of any outcome. Right. We don't have to be afraid. I mean, we, we, you know, th- there's things and there's consequences, but the Lord is. And we need to steal ourselves for hard times right. because there's real consequences to things. Right. But that doesn't equal fear. No. No. And that's the difference, which is a hard distinction to make, right. to know that it's going to be hard, but I don't have to be afraid of that because evil and sin, death, which is the worst that they could do to us, it's already been conquered. I just think, oh, God, God be praised. May he save us from having to see evil times and give us a very, very powerful heart to believe in his sovereignty no matter what and to have courage to face what whatever comes in his holy name and to be able to experience abundance and scarcity mm. however it shows its face indeed amen. amen okay we'll see you guys bye bye the word on the hill podcast is a production of the aquinas institute for catholic thought here in beautiful boulder colorado you can find us online at www.thomascenter.org a-i-c-t and you can find the lanky guys podcast at lankyguys.org Thank you so much for listening, and we will be back next time.